This is the Final Fix Podcast. This is just real people having real conversations surrounding substance abuse and the way addiction impacts communities. We're three brothers who have experienced addiction through a family member. We each have unique perspectives to the same situation, and as we have healed through discussing, we want to share our experience and speak with others who have been affected by substance abuse. Our goal with this podcast is to spread awareness of the harm of substance abuse. To talk to real people about their experience and how they've healed and to learn more about the role that substance abuse plays in communities and families. We are not experts, just brothers who have had our own experiences around addiction and want to help others by facilitating conversations. Please be aware that some of these conversations may be difficult and triggering. Any episodes that feature adult content will be labeled as explicit and may not be appropriate for children. This is the Final Fix podcast. We're excited to have a couple guests with us today. This is our first time having a few people at the same time. So I'll go ahead and let you two introduce yourself. So my name is Cherie Spielman, and I ran the Syringe Exchange Program and the AIDS Outreach Project in Snohomish County for about 25 years. I've been gone from there now for the last two years, but I spent a lot of time there and in the field and developing that program. I'm sure you'll have a lot of great insight to what we're doing here. <laughs> I do. And I've listened to your other two podcasts so far and love them. Great. Awesome. Awesome. That makes us feel good. <laughs> yeah. All right. And Malik, do you want to tell us a little bit about oh, yourself? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm uh, Malik and Cherie is my mom. So I don't have near the experience that she does professionally, but I have 20 years of living with her and hearing about stuff and seeing it from, from the perspective of a relative. Definitely. Definitely. The, uh, I mean, it's, it's wild. The, that's one of the first things that we talked about. It's kind of the theme of this show is the perspectives that you get from all angles of substance abuse and what goes on, uh, how the communities are affected. So every role has something to add and some significance to it. So there's, there's no unimportant role. Dominic, I know you said you had a couple questions right off the bat that you yes. wanted to, to hit. So I'll go ahead okay, and let you get so started. Pretty big question for the first one. Just for people like listening and stuff, because this is one of my biggest questions is, what have you seen um, in approaching an addict that you may not know is, um, you know, having substance abuse issues is the most effective way? Uh, and this is for you, Jerry. Uh, the most effective way to approach somebody that you that that you know is an addict or you don't know or you're not sure like you're not sure um just more of like a how to not accuse someone because you know i always thought stuff was kind of weird with my mom but i'm never gonna accuse someone of that right right if i if i'm if i'm with somebody and i don't know but i'm but i'm suspecting but I don't want to be rude and go, Hey, are you doing this or doing that? Usually I usually just try and keep myself open. I just try and be a safe person. Like I try not to judge a bunch of anything and, and then talk about things very matter of factly. You know, sometimes I bring up the fact that, you know, I've been in recovery for a long time and uh, sometimes people, what, Sometimes people will make comments about things that I pick up on and go, oh, oh yeah, that must be, you know, like, oh, when, when I was homeless or when I was, the, you know, one time I was in my car, then I just try and say things like, oh, that must have been really hard, you know, well, what circumstances brought you to that? That doesn't sound very easy. Just trying to do that validation thing because, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was in, in my role. I knew everybody that was coming to see me was shooting dope in some way. So that wasn't hard. It was it, for, for me with them. It was simply, you know, if it was a new person, I would just say, Hey, you know, I'm glad you're here. How'd you hear about us? What are you using? How are you using? We just went right into the conversation because my message was always, I don't, I don't give a shit what you're using. I care about how you're using you know, how are you taking care of your body? You can be addicted to something and still take care of your body. Your body is still worthy of being taken care of. And there's lots of ways to do that. Small things, everything helps. So I was just going to say, it's amazing. The, um, when you take away that stigma, the, uh, normal everyday people that are 
you know, have, have some sort of vice. My wife is in the medical field and she had a patient that she had been seeing for like a year and he like opened up about some very serious drug use and was just like a regular businessman that nobody would have expected. And she helped him get sober. Like, and it's just, um, I think that there's just a lot of stigma that is, is associated with drug use and, uh, being open, acknowledging, you know, the struggle that somebody might have, that's huge first steps. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if it's, if it's somebody that, you know, and clearly you see the signs of it and you're not sure how to bring it up, my suggestion is always be gentle and be honest. Hey, I see these marks on your arm. Like, are you using, it's okay. If you are, I just want to know, like, I'm here to support you. It's easier to do that than just to like beat around the bush and, but, but, but gentle is the key word there. <laughs> and when it comes to like stuff like that and teaching people how to, you know, approach people and learning what it really is to be in that situation. Uh, Malik, I wanted to ask you, uh, what has your mom's work taught you in regards to life or in regards to relationships with people and stuff like that? I think what, what Jordan was saying that uh, people see people on the street or their family members or or whatever have this problem addiction and it can it can look real scary and jarring but people got to remember that they're like human beings they were human before it they're going to be human after it they're human now um so it's super crazy to me that you would treat someone worse based only on that on the fact that they're addicted to a substance uh, i get it if they're doing other things that are you know like harmful to the people around them that's kind of different but i think that's probably one of the biggest things is that even though sometimes there's people are scared of, of homeless people or addicts i never have been since i was little I, i've seen them in the worst the worst of the worst and they're not so bad uh, and they're all they're all people who deserve you know, respect and being treated kindly. I think that's probably the biggest thing. Go ahead. I I want to jump off of that because uh, to your point, I volunteered uh, at a a soup kitchen, I I guess is what it would be called. It was kind of like an impromptu thing. They do once a month at one of the churches there in Everett. And I had, um, I was a little hesitant, but after that experience, it blew my mind how i guess to just normal right you just having these conversations with these people that are normal uh they're just normal people you know they they're going through something in their life but you know after serving them and you sit down with them it just it really blew my mind how i just was having this normal conversation from somebody who if i didn't know them before that i might have changed you know across the street if they were walking towards (laughs) me right there's just that it just, it's, you almost, I felt bad. I was like, I was ashamed of myself for feeling that way. Cause I'm like, man, I would have changed. I would have walked across the street and went the other sidewalk if I saw them in the street, but they're just people. And, and I think that's a huge, that's amazing advice. Cause they're just people. A hundred percent. I, I agree. I think the other thing, like y- you never know what led somebody to that point. There's always the argument, especially looking at, you know, history that, oh, if, if I was in that position, I would have done something different, but you, you probably wouldn't have, I, you know, they've gone back and they've done psychological studies, like of people performing, um, I, the one classic one is like experiments where they put people in one role of a prisoner and one role as a prison guard and just assigning them this role that they all knew was fake. They were all students and the prison guards were still like being violent and degrading and the prisoners like fell into this role. So I think that it's easy from the outside to like poke at people and criticize if somebody's in that low point, but like you have no idea what led them to that point. And so that's just, I mean, it's, it's something that most people don't have that lens of, and maybe never will have that lens. Um, but it's good, especially like growing up, seeing your mom in this role and getting that young, like to where you have that respect for people. I mean, that's, that's huge. I wanted to say that people, I don't think realize that addiction isn't, um, only like a a brain thing. It's not a a mental thing. It's a literal 
illness. It's like a physical thing. Physical changes happen to you. Uh, people, I mean, it's so easy. You get in a car accident, you hurt your back. They give you perks. You run out of the perks. Your back still hurts. The doctor won't refill your prescription. Like, what else are you supposed to do? You find somebody who's got perks on the street or you find what's cheaper. It's so easy. Like, I don't think people realize how easy it is uh, to become addicted to something. Like a totally normal person, no problems. And, you know, one bad situation, it can do it to anybody. And you don't even catch it. It happens so right. quick sometimes. Um, there's times, and I've talked about this with my brothers, like the... I. I have struggled before with drinking and like, it's not, not to where I'm, you know, violent or anything like that. But there's times where I notice like I'm starting to get a dependency. If you looked at the DSM, like I, I would fall into the alcohol use disorder, like spectrum somewhere in there. But like, I wouldn't have ever said that I'm an alcoholic or like had any of these things, but it's like, okay, then I go two days without drinking. And I start to get shakes and it's like, Oh wow. Like, um, so that's, you know, a, <laughs> a, you know, fortunately it's only happened a few times, but like the kind of like checking yourself and realizing like, okay, like it can, it's such a slippery slope and can happen to anybody at any point. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and just to uh, sort of add on to what Malik said about that in seeing people as real people. And then there's a lot, you know, like you said, there's a lot of judgment. I, I've had to sort of adapt the philosophy in my life that people do the best they can with what they have at the time that they're doing. And if they knew better, they could do better, but people always can't. I think about my own life and I think about, you know, some of the stuff that I've done and I, and part of that self-forgiveness is I did the best I could with what I had. Did my children all, were they worthy of, of better than that? Of course they were, but it was all I had to give. And so if I apply that to other people, it helps because you know, I think, well, they did the best that they could with what they had. I don't know. I don't know the situation. And then there's always those people that say, oh, well, if I could do it, then, you know, you could do it. And I always say, well, that's your ego because no, that's not true. Everybody, I, I like to think that everybody can't, like we do recover. People do recover. Everybody isn't going to recover. And it's not because of their, you know, their weak will or some people just don't have the ability. Some people's um, woundedness is so deep and they don't have the support or the safe emotional place or the emotional tools. And, and they just, they're just not going to recover. You know, I, I like to think you never know, like you never know, but, and, and I always have hope for everybody, but the bottom line is there are people that are just not going to be able to get over the wounds that they have to add on to that uh i have a couple of questions or comments but um you saying that really validated my feelings with my mom because you know we talk about it all the time you know she kept it together for so long before she finally fell off and she was doing the best with what she had you know uh and so that really healed a little part of me there you know coming from you someone with so much experience uh another thing is someone in that position that in between, you know, that they're fighting their demons, they're trying to be sober, but you know, they don't have the resources or the support. What are some good resources that they can go to, uh, to either get that support or just start that healing process? Um, well, you know, 12, I'm, I'm a big, uh, supporter of 12 step programs, <laughs> um, because they, there's a lot of freedom in walking in a room you know, it doesn't matter if you're high. It doesn't matter if you're not sober. You just have to have the desire to be. And then there's a lot of people there that have gone through the same thing. I, I just, I, I tell people wherever you can go to find somebody to talk about it. That's the first thing. Find somebody safe to talk about it. Perhaps it's not your family. Oftentimes it's not <laughs> because families have been wounded as well. Like the disease of addiction is a family disease. Like we all are affected and we all do things, you know, in a, in a way that worked, but isn't so healthy for us. And so I tell people, find somebody to talk to anybody that will, that you can talk to that has, that can sort of provide an emotional safe place for you and talk it out because that's, that's the, probably the first thing you have to be able to talk to somebody, somebody, whether it's your you know, your person, if you're a faith-based person, maybe it's somebody in your church, maybe it's 
you know, for, for me, I got a lot of that because I was a needle exchange lady and I was safe and they all knew, like, I didn't give a shit what they were doing. I just cared about who they were. Lots of times I would say drugs are what you do. It's not who you are. And people would go, what? <laughs> and I mean, that's a, that's a revelation, right? So I just say, talk about it. It's, addiction is so shameful, let alone what our society puts on it. But the person who is living with that disease of addiction, they're so ashamed. They're crossing every boundary that they had for themselves. They're crossing their own values. They're, you know, they're, they're doing things against their own will because they're driven by some need to be some need to get their drug because, well, especially with opiates, opioids, you, you cannot function without them. If you're trying to function every day, like you're in, you're in this um, never ending circle sometimes. So I just, there's just, there's so much shame. There's just so, so much shame. People know that they're doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And, and they know that they're, you know, that they've done destruction in other people's lives. And there's just so much shame. And if, if people can find a place where they can feel a lesser amount of shame, you know, then by all means, I tell people, talk about it, just talk about it. And then there's all sorts of treatments out there. There's treatment programs and there's lots of 12 step programs and churches have programs and, you know, whatever works. It's not a one size fits all. Does that, does that help? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's... <laughs> you know, and, and medication assisted um, therapies the last several years have been really helpful. And then there are people who say, oh, well, if you're on methadone or you're on Suboxone, you're not really clean. Well, you know what? I just say, fuck you. Cause it is, it is, it's better to go to the doctor and get a medication for your illness than it is to buy the shit on the street and perhaps die. <laughs> it's okay, much definitely. easier than you're talking to somebody. You're accountable. There are people who take antidepressants because we can't control our chemistry in our body. And nobody says, Oh, well, you're not really, you know, not depressed because you're taking antidepressants. That's stupid. <laughs> you know, I've, ne people, yeah, you, that, I've never take, had anybody make that connection. That's I right. Mean, yeah. People, yeah. And sometimes people are on antidepressants for the entire rest of their lives because it, because it balances their chemistry. Well, it's the same thing with some of the, some of the um, medical medically assisted treatments. Sometimes people's chemistry is messed up maybe it was messed up before. Maybe it's messed up because the drugs have permanently done damage, whatever it is. If we can take a medication that lets them be productive members of society and heal from the things that drove them there to begin with, then who cares if they have to take it the rest of their lives? Like who cares if it works, it works. So I want to ask, how did you get started in your role? And like, did you have this, this just innate nature to help and to be like who you are immediately? Or is this something that like you had to learn through the process and your perspective changed? I know it's kind of a loaded question. Um, well, I think I've always had, I've always been the odd one out. Like I'm kind of the black sheep in my family, but there's a lot of freedom in that. So it's not a bad thing. Um, and, and I always was rooting for the underdog as a, even as a, a little kid, I rooted for the underdog. And then I went through my own stuff. I, I used drugs. I drank a lot. I attempted suicide twice. Finally was ready to try it again. And, uh, some stranger came up to me in the park where I was sitting and told me to go to Al-Anon. Al-Anon is for friends and family of people who have a problem with drinking. Um, <clears throat> so I did that and that turned my life in a different direction and so then I was going to, what I really wanted to do is be a family therapist. And then after a couple of years at the, at the community college, I was like, mm, no, I'm done with school now. Yeah. <laughs> so I got my two-year degree in um, addiction studies and another two-year degree in counseling casework management. Okay. And I had a friend who was running the exchange for a little while and she was moving and she called and said, you're the only person that I trust with these people. And I was like, oh, okay. So I went to work there and that was in what, 95, 94, 91, 90, I don't know. 
27 years ago, whatever that is, do the math. No. Right? Um, so I went and, and I loved it. I loved it. I've always had a soft spot for old people, crazy people, and drug addicts, always. <laughs> so here we go. <laughs> this, this, this fit the bill for me. And I really loved it. And I realized right away that they were going to teach me a lot about being a, a decent human. You know, I've, I've learned, I learned so much how to tap into those, to, to the deep well of compassion that I have, how to meet somebody in the middle of their own world and not try and fix them, yeah. how to handle someone's truth with a poker face, <laughs> you know, how to love without conditions, how to have really good boundaries. Mm-hmm. You know, that was really good. How to have boundaries in a way that was still kind and gentle, but firm. I mean, I just, I learned so much. So through that, it, it made me a better, it made me a better person. You know, I always, I always try and look at people that cross my path and say, well, what are they, what are they teaching me? What are they here to teach me? Yeah. And, and in that I made a really good student, but I am also a very good teacher. So <laughs> I earned a lot of respect after all those years. There's, there wasn't any place that I could know that people weren't, you know, number one coming up to get a hug. And I didn't, you know, I didn't give a shit how long it had been since you had a shower or cleaned up or any of that. It was the person. It was that real, like, like Malik was talking about, like, these are real humans. These are real humans who are hurting a lot. And I got to see that lots of people don't get to see that. We see them with their armor up, you know, on the streets and on the, but I got to see the real people. So that's awesome. And I loved it. I loved it. In our first episode, I told a story about, you know, Dominic and I had gone to Walmart to buy the, uh, I don't know exactly what they're called. The needles, the orange tip needles, syringes, syringes, just the syringes for my dog who had diabetes and they stopped selling them. And the story randomly, I went in there one day and they're like, we don't sell those anymore. And I was like, well, why? And they said, well, we were basically too many drug addicts were buying them. And then there was just needles all over the parking lot. So we made a company decision to stop selling them. So I guess my question is at the needle exchange, like what exactly, what services are those? Is that something where people can go get new needles or is it just an exchange? What, what is that for people listening? Um, so people could, people could come in. Um, and bring their old syringes, syringes in Seattle. There's they you don't have to always have old syringes. They can give out um, new syringes without having the old ones because of our County, the way that our program was set up, people had to bring in their old ones. So say somebody comes in and they have 40 syringes and they're used, they put them in the sharps container and then we give them back. We offered several different sizes because depending on what you're using and how you're using different sizes, treat your body better. And our whole thing is harm reduction. Like whatever we can help you do to reduce the harm that you're doing to yourself, which in turn reduces the harm that you're doing to your community, then then that's what we're here for. So we would talk about what they were using and especially if they were new, like we have these different sizes. And then we also gave out um, little cottons that people could strain their, strain their drugs through. We gave out um, little tin... Um, little tin cookers. So people didn't have to share that and they didn't have to share the cottons and we give out alcohol wipes because if you wipe your skin with an alcohol wipe before you inject, then you're going to prevent an infection. And if we can prevent an infection, then we're going to save, you know, thousands of dollars at the ER because that's where you're going to end up. So we would go over all of these things. And, um, those were all things that the CDC recommends as far as, um, HIV prevention, because sharing any of those things, any injecting equipment, you can pass HIV on as well as hepatitis to someone else if you're all using the same stuff. So we tried to get people to just like you use yours and you use yours. And so then we would, so you didn't get to just come in and go, here's my needles. Here's your needles. See you later. Like you get a, you get the speech. Okay. How are you? What are you doing? Let's see. Oh, you have an abscess. Let me look at it. <laughs> no. So people just got used to that. They would come in and they would, you know, we would talk about whatever was going on, but that's how it works. Just the, the syringes, they have to, they had to bring in the amount that we gave back out. We had a little, we had some wiggle room 
because sometimes people would bring in a bunch and they would they were going to stop using. So then we had a little surplus in case somebody didn't have any. But mostly it was just that message of you're worthy of taking care of your body. You're worthy of taking care of your body. You're worthy of taking care of your body. One thing I just wanted to say is like, just thank you. Um, for the whole time that I've known Malik, he's been exactly like this. And I feel like that really helped me, even when I didn't talk about my mom's addiction or talk about what was going on with me. He was just always someone that I could talk to like super easily, even if he didn't know that it was like helping me. It, it, he was just always like that. So I just wanted to say thank to both of you. Um, just for all you do. You're very well. You're very, very welcome. Of course. Oh, mom, I wanted to, uh, or I guess Alex, were you asking, uh, like generally overall also, what was the needle exchange doing? Cause that, I don't know if I think you guys did more than what you just described. Mom. Yeah, we did on Thursdays. Like you had the, the people come in, in the back and they could go back there and get like hooked up with different uh, resources. The dude that would test for HIV and hepatitis. And like, you guys did a lot more than just, you bring us needles. We give you needles and cookers and cottons right. and waters and stuff. You did a lot of stuff. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Malik. We did. So we also had lots of literature and lots of um, resources on Thursdays was our drop-in clinic in the afternoon and the evenings. And there's an organization called Mercy Watch in Snohomish County, and they do street medicine. And so we made a little area in our um, back room, in our storage room, and <clears throat> fixed that up so that they could see people. And then we always made sure to feed people something because that's how you make friends with people. That's how you bring people's guards down. You offer them food. This is how we love you. We're going to feed you. We love you with food first. And then, so yeah, we would always make sure to have, you know, something to drink and some snack to eat. We had a local business that gave us all their donuts at the end of the day on Thursdays. So it's kind of, you know, we just tried to round it out. If somebody really needed to go to the hospital, I would go with them or my, or my coworker, one of us would go with them because oftentimes the hospital, they get, they get pretty, um, they get pretty disgusted with people that just continue to come in and, and, you know, they don't, they have other things to do. So one of us would go with them if need be. There's several times when, when my clients would be pregnant and then they would go into labor and not know who to call um, from the hospital. And so I was, I was honored to be, I've been at lots of births of babies that were born to my clients. Most of them are taken away, you know, and that's a, that's something that I just had to learn how to sit with, with someone else's grief and someone else's suffering. I couldn't fix it, but I could make sure that I was in the midst of it. So they weren't by themselves so that they just weren't alone. Is there any sort of way that like, did you struggle with that in the beginning? And Malik, you too, I mean, 20 years of experiencing it, you know, mom's coming home and talking about all these stories or whatever is, did you ever struggle with, uh, you know, seeing all these things or hearing these stories and stuff like that? Uh, yeah. I seen some crazy shit going to work with my mom. One time I saw a lady, uh, she was sitting there. I think she had just exchanged or she was waiting, but she had a, a huge, uh, grand mall seizure i think i was like eight she just fell over and just just started seizing. it was crazy i didn't know what was going on everybody started freaking out so that rattled me pretty good i've seen people like people have come up and and talked to me clearly uh, off of whatever they're <laughs> like they either be talking to me and they start nodding off in the middle of the conversation <laughs> i'm 10 years old and they're like oh man like your mom she's the best she's the best falling asleep or they're on the other side and they're like picking at their face and moving around and being weird so like as a kid it was pretty intense and it was uh, maybe a little scary i don't remember ever being really scared but uh yeah in the beginning it was quite jarring but i think it's made me i mean i'm only 20 years old but i think i can see stuff like that now and be way more like understanding calm uh, about it so I think it, I think it was helpful. You'd be, yeah. I, I mean, just to interject here, do you, what are your aspirations? I guess, do you want to work in this space at all? Cause I feel like just with the experience of growing up with your mom, like you have so many tools that you could just do so much change. And I, you know, you and Dom know each other pretty well. So, and I don't know your whole story. So 
I, you may be already doing something, but I just don't know. No, I, uh, I don't think that I would be as good in practice as I am in like theory. I know a lot and and the people that I know, you know, a lot of my friends end up coming to me for stuff. And I think I'm pretty good at uh, giving advice and steering people in directions of better stuff. But I don't think that I would be good at, at doing it with strangers. And yeah, I don't know. Seeing my mom do it. I just don't think I could do it. Yeah. It's gotta be tough. I mean, like witnessing it firsthand, seeing the, the grief that she talked about and the feelings um, when there is, you know, loss or um, I mean, it's just, it's gotta be very heavy on you. Um, yeah. So it I, was, can, I can empathize. It's, yeah. It's also really long. I mean, that's, it's not a, it's not, you know, we wake up at eight 30 and you're in the office by nine and you get a 30 minute lunch and you come home for my whole childhood. Uh, my mom wasn't, I mean, she wasn't home till 12, one, two, three in the morning. Cause she was out. They don't stop. They don't stop using drugs. They don't stop needing help. They don't stop needing to go to the hospital right now where they're going to die. And she's the only yeah. one that, that they feel like safe and comfortable enough to talk to you about that. So there's a lot of nights where I would, I would call, call her cell phone over and over and over and over and over 20 times. She didn't pick up and I start calling the office phone over and over and over and over and over. Um, and then she pick up, I'm ashamed. You stop calling me. I'll be home in a little bit. And I'd be like, okay, like I just needed to know that you were still alive. Or I just needed to know that you were all right. I've been calling you for an hour. That was going to be another question. It was like, obviously um, you're, you're desensitized to a lot of these things pretty young, but like, was there ever, ever a worry of violence or of, you know, sometimes if people are under the influence, like stuff happens and you know, you, there's always gotta be that kind of fear lingering. Yeah. I mean, every time, if I didn't really have to see the people that she was interacting with every day, every day, and they weren't, nobody really act up to acted up too crazy when I was around, I think partially because people don't want to do that in front of a kid, but they also don't want to do it in front of her kid. Cause like, she's a needle lady. They, they don't want to mess with the needle lady, <laughs> no. but, uh, I was super worried a lot of the time about her getting sick like hiv hepatitis getting stuck with a needle uh, i don't know someone coming in with nuclear tuberculosis and getting it like i don't know i didn't know what was going on that was the thing that i worried about the most and then if somebody was acting up i would be a little concerned and especially because she likes to get in there and help with stuff there was a, a time when someone that we know was having a bit of a hard time uh on meth and recently yeah like this was just not very long ago and he he was like full on like he wasn't there he didn't know what was going on he thought he was somewhere else he thought people were trying to get him um so it was up all night so the whole night i was up my mom was up and my friend had come over that one was probably the most like worried I was because she was just trying to help him and I was like you gotta back up a little bit like you gotta like, he doesn't know what's going on and if he does something like I'm gonna have to do something I would rather nobody has to do anything he can just chill until he's all right but that was probably the, the most like scared that I've been watching her do her thing my uh for a period my dad was a cop in Everett and he worked the um, night shift and he, it was just him and I at home. And so, and like my grandma would be there sometimes. And it was just like, there'd be times where I'd wake up in the morning and he's still not home and he should be home. And like, I remember that fear. And I mean, it was only a couple of years of my life. And I remember that fear of like, what's going on. And then there was a, uh, an incident where he had to use his weapon and he was like home for a month because he was like, there was an investigation going on and he couldn't talk about it. And he was like, he wasn't like overly stressed out because he knew he like had done the right thing, followed the right steps. But it was like, I could just see this change and like this stress in him. And it like these kind of professions are so heavy and affect the entire family. Um, yeah. And I just don't think people realize the, the effects. I was going to say, I think, uh, I think, 
any trauma that Malik has suffered from his childhood, that was it. Like not knowing where his mom was at midnight <laughs> or one or two in the morning. <laughs> um, but, and as for me, just quickly, it, it didn't, it never, it, it was a little bit of a learning curve, but I just, I just jumped in and it didn't, I listened to my gut a lot. If I felt like something was not right, then I wouldn't go to a place because we did delivery as well. There was always two of us. I had a coworker oh. that we worked together for 15 years. There was two of us. So, and he's big. He was a big guy, Good. but well, he, he was big, you know, in stature, but he was just a, he's just got the biggest, softest heart ever. Yeah. That, that I totally forgot, but yeah, her, her deputy right-hand man, <laughs> lieutenant, yes. dude, I'd known that guy, man, since I was five or whatever. So I wasn't, that was another thing. I wasn't really worried because he was always there and yeah. he is, he's a big dude. That's awesome. The, I can't imagine doing delivery with that. Like there was one time that it kind of hit uh, real that what was happening with mom. Like I remember Alex had sent me a news article and was like, this is the house that mom was at. And it was like a house that got like, there was, they were squatting and there was a bunch of people in the house. And like, there was just pictures of the driveway, syringes everywhere. There was, you know, the house was trashed and it was like, this is just, I can't imagine showing up at places like that, you know, heart in the complete right place. But like, I just can't imagine. It, it got pretty interesting. I mean, going to people's houses where they were squatting, where they were going into the woods, walking into camps. Yes, it gets pretty colorful. <laughs> but we didn't ever get scared because... um if it felt scary to begin with, then we just didn't go. Like we, I, it's so important if you have to be out there doing that kind of work that you listen to your gut and you trust your intuition. I mean, I, it could have failed us, sure, but it never did. It was always, um, it was always right on. Um, but yeah, there, there were some scary places and sketchy people and <laughs> the situation that Malik was talking about with one of our, with one of our family friends who, relapsed and was here. It wasn't that I was trying to be all up in his business, but as I was holding his hand, if I was touching him, he was settled a bit. And so, but Malik finally came and he's like, mom, I'm, I'm going to have to hurt somebody. Like if he hurts you, like, <laughs> so I was like, okay, we'll change our strategy. <laughs> I want to circle back. I want to circle back really quick with the, uh, you mentioned Al-Anon and the, the, reason that I want to go back to that is uh, I, I had a chance to speak at the uh, Linwood City Council and there was another gentleman there with a, a lived experience and um, him, he himself was uh, struggling and he basically found Al-Anon. I, I think that's the basis of his story was that he got involved with Al-Anon and, and um, he ended up on the, the board of directors or however they do that and then now he's the president of the all the uh, Al-Anon in Linwood, and and they're talking about how they're building, you know, is uh, they have no lease, they don't know when the building's going to get torn down. They're trying to find a new space. Al-Anon, I didn't really get to hear too much about that resource. Like, what what do they offer? Like, what? How can someone just can you just show up there, or what? How does that work? Uh, Al-Anon meetings, they're just it's just a twelve step program, and you just show up and you just listen and. Um, you hear people tell their stories, people welcome you because they know, they know if you walk in and you're brand new, they know that you're ashamed and that you got secrets and that your family's not well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nobody finds their way to a 12 step meeting because they're happy and everything's great in their life. Like you pretty much have to be <laughs> down and out in the worst way. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it's like, it's ran like any other 12 step meeting. They have the, the steps and the traditions and Sometimes they'll have a first step meeting, which is where they, the new people kind of go off into another room and talk about it. So when I went to the city council meeting as well, and, you know, as someone who worked in the field and it's not necessarily Linwood, but they said the biggest issue is resources. They don't have enough funding or people or anything like that. And I was just wondering as someone who worked in it, did you feel that on every single day at work? Uh, did you feel the struggle of not having enough beds or, you know, and stuff like that? Yep. Every single day, every single day when somebody wants to go to treatment or they're sort of open to being to help, there's this little tiny window of opportunity. And so we, we try and get that window of opportunity. 
because it's short lived, right? Somebody's having a moment, they've had a bad day, they've had a bad week, they're like, okay, I'm done with this shit. I want to, I want to get clean. What can I do? What do I need to do? Well, then, okay, so call the number. Even I could call a number, but it was still going to be two or three days before even I could get somebody into treatment. And that was me calling in a favor because I got lots of connections over all those years and lots of favors. And, but if, if they didn't do that, then they had to call on their own. And then it was like maybe three or four weeks before they could get an appointment. And then by then, you know, God only knows what could have happened. But then if they manage to get to their appointment, whether it's three days or three weeks, they get their assessment and then they're put on a wait list. And then it's, then, then we're waiting for a bed. And then sometimes that's four or five weeks. Well, that this little window of opportunity, like people move on from that. And so it was very frustrating that we couldn't, I mean, they're literally our hands are tied. All we could do is just say, until you can figure that out, keep coming back. I have faith in you. You're very resourceful, you know, and people do, they do get clean. They do, you know, they do recover. I have several clients now that have been clean for a couple of years and, and, but it's a, it's a struggle. It's not like you can just call up because you have great insurance and go to some place that's really nice and posh and have some treatment for 30 days or 60 days. It's not like that at all. It's not. Yeah. It's very frustrating. Very, very frustrating. The mental and the mental health system, like our systems are just broke. They're just yeah. broke. Yeah. Just I was just going to say on, on those same lines, you, you've been, you were in that role since, you know, early nineties. Did you see the resources that you had like grow and then the need just continued to outweigh or was it kind of steady? I mean, Alec, they, the guys went to that meeting. And so obviously like the, the public people are talking about it and trying to figure out what they can do. And this has been a problem for a long time, but like has it, I guess, are we growing to try to match the need, especially in Snohomish County there? Well, a couple of things. It was easier to get people into treatment early on because there weren't as many people addicted. And so as the number of people in our society are more addicted, more addicted, more addicted, um, they've added new resources like methadone and, and buprenorphine and, you know, the medically assisted stuff. We've added those, but then, but now there's just like more hoops to jump through and, and, and it doesn't, it doesn't catch up with the need that, yeah, the need far outweighs the slots that there are for people to get help. So it's really, you just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how people do it on their own because even if I'm helping case manage somebody and making the calls and try, it's, it's damn near impossible. Like, I don't, I don't know how they expect people to, to do it really sick people to do that when they're just trying to figure out where they're going to sleep that's safe tonight or where my next meal is going to come from. The amount of good that you did, not only, you know, not only for those people um, individually, but like for the prevention of a lot of different, you know, could be fatal diseases as well. It's huge. Indiana where I live now, like is uh, I want to say pretty behind the curve on some of the um, response to, you know, substance abuse. And um, there was a case that kind of shed a lot of light on it in a county a little south of me, where I think 40 people had got HIV in like a very short amount of time, um, just from sharing needles. And there was no program like that. Like there was nothing, almost nothing available to them. Like the state, um, you know, did a emergency response, tried to help them, but... Um, to go off of that, uh, is there any way that, you know, regular normal people not in, um, the industry, whatever can help like any way at all? And there actually is, we call those average people. Cause I don't think anybody's normal. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> normal is a setting on the dryer at our house. Yeah. <laughs> the average person there is actually. And one of the other things that we were able to implement in the last, in the last 10 years was, um, Narcan, naloxone. And so we would get it and we would get the kits and I'm a trainer. So I could, and so I could train my staff, my, and volunteers, and we could train people on how to use it, get them a kit. We put kits together, um, and get those out there. One of the things that I think everybody should carry 
is an overdose kit. I carry one. I've, I've reversed two overdoses in my life with, with using naloxone. Naloxone and Narcan are the same thing. It's just Narcan is the brand. Naloxone is the generic. Sure. <clears throat> I think everybody should carry it. I think everybody should carry it. It's the number one easiest way to save somebody's life if they're overdosing on an opiate. Yeah. It's, I think everybody should carry it and learn how to use it. So that's one thing. <laughs> the hmm. other thing is look at people with compassion and put down the judgment and take care of yourselves. Take care of ourselves. People, we all as a community need to take care of ourselves. If we're okay, if our emotional state is okay, if we've learned the tools to deal with how, with our own feelings, we're not going to be so triggered by the person on the street corner or, you know, something like that. If we're okay, we are better able to show up in the world to support those people that aren't self-care, 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 self-care for ourselves, all of us. I, I have to yeah. say, when I listen to you guys, I've listened to both of your podcasts so far and one of my most favorite things, and I told Malik this, one of my most favorite, favorite things. So you guys talk about getting help. You talk about getting, getting therapy or get, being in counseling. And, and I think, especially as men, like that's so important. That's so important to, to just talk about like, you know, it's no big deal. Like my family does that. Like my family's therapy, therapy friendly, yeah. all of us. But to have it on a podcast where people are going to hear it, I think it really starts to normalize it. And I, I love that. I, that's one of my favorite parts of your podcasts. Well, it just Good. goes back. It just goes back to the, you just really don't know what someone's going through. And just a quick side story. I was at, I mean, you're probably familiar with the area and I don't, I don't know the exact name of the uh, meeting place, but it's on Evergreen and Everett. And it's like right across from, I think it's a Wendy's or Taco Bell or whatever. It's a fast food place right oh, there on the QFC people. side. Anyways, it's irrelevant. I was um, in the drive-thru waiting for my food and a meeting got out and it was, I don't know, for lack of a better term, it was like what you'd expect. Some of the people that walked out were kind of like what you'd expect coming out of uh, an NA meeting. And then I saw a guy in a full-blown, like, really nice suit, followed by his wife. It looked like they were just hitting a meeting before they went to a nice dinner. Right behind him, there was like a, couldn't have, you know, one of the per people had their kid there. I think it was, a, I mean, unless I was misjudging their age, they looked kind of young. But the variety of people that I saw come out of that meeting, I'm like, you really don't know what people, you really have no idea what people are going through because you would have put those people in a room together and you would have never guessed that they all had this, the quote unquote, the same issue. Right. Right. So, it just blew my mind. Um, on the topic of, you know, self-care and, you know, therapy and stuff like that. Uh, is there any books or websites or anything that you can read or, you know, to get help, you know, in yourself, within yourself, you know, it doesn't have to be with anyone else. You get this resource and you can help yourself uh, that you recommend. Um, well, I think, I think Brene Brown's books, all of her books are good. They're all about taking care of yourself. And she makes, she kind of makes fun of herself and they're really good. But, but also I want to add to that, that we don't heal alone. We didn't get messed up alone. We didn't get these deep wounds that we, sustain as young people. Um, we didn't, that didn't happen alone and we don't heal alone. We can't heal alone. We need other people. We need, even if it's just one or two other people, I mean, we can read like, you know, Brene Brown's books. I, I love, the, I love her She's great. and I love her stuff. Yeah. Right. And, uh, um, boy, I don't even her, know off the her top. talks are really good too. If people don't have yes. access to like, I mean, the library is free pretty much everywhere, um, right. but like she has talks online too. Yes. That are awesome. Yes. YouTube. YouTube is great. All of her YouTubes are great. So I, I always suggest those first thing. And then from there, like figure out how to connect your spirit into your body, like figure out, you know, but you can't do it alone. It can't happen alone. Healing does not happen alone. My, our best thinking brought us to this place. Our best thinking isn't going to heal us. Does that make sense? Yes. So yes. <laughs> it just isn't like shame. If I try and heal myself on my own, my shame doesn't go away. I need other people to bounce it off of. I need, I need to see my own reflection 
in the eyes of other people so that I can know, especially in the beginning, after a while, it doesn't become such a need, but in the beginning, it's really important to know that there are people in my life that, that I would give that, that I would say that person has a vote. Like not everybody gets a vote in my life. That person gets a vote. I give a shit what that person thinks of me. Uh-huh. You know, that I have, I have, I have handfuls of people right now that I, I care what they think of me because they help keep me on, on even ground. But there are lots of other people who I don't give a shit what they think of me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't get in a pit. They don't get a vote <laughs> and that's okay. In middle school, when we were all kind of in the thick of it, I had a counselor tell me because I was ashamed of asking my brothers and sisters for help. Uh, she told me that they're probably going through the same thing as you right now. And they're just expressing it in a different way. Uh, and it's just, it's so true that you don't heal on your own because, you know, when I finally felt like I began healing, it was through writing and I had to sit down with my English teacher and go through every rough detail. And I was like, this is actually helping me so much because it's validating what I went through. Um, and I just really want that to hit home, uh, for anyone listening, because that's so true. It is true. And, and it's important in families where addiction is going on that like we start to just, nobody sees anyone, nobody sees each other. We're all sort of in the survival mode and, and trying to just trying to breathe ourselves and, and whoever the identified, you know, troubled person is, they're trying to just keep their head above water. So when, when it, you know, when it comes time to, to being able to heal, it's important that we have people that can see us. Like that's all, that's all any of us really want, right? We just want to be seen, just see me for who I am. Don't see me for what I'm doing or, you know, the disease that I'm suffering behind or, just see me here acknowledge my suffering acknowledge my pain don't try and fix it don't try and fix it another person has a right to their own life path if you jump in and you try and fix it well here let me do this did you try that have you what about that all that does is build a wall and people go yeah 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 yeah. back off but if you just say i i i hear you and that's tough and how can i support you or what can i do versus jumping in with all the answers (laughs) Yeah. Go ahead. I think that one thing, you know, I, I, I don't want to make it seem like we're patting our back, but I think one thing we really did well as a family is I know that we all have different views and we all have different opinions on our, the situation with our mom, but that didn't, that didn't matter. And it doesn't matter. I have how I feel. Jordan has how he feels, etc. But when when the other person was is struggling or we're talking about it, there's no like shame. Like if, if, if Dominic is upset or he, you know, even if I'm coming from a place where I might be angry with my mom and I'm like, I don't, you know, she's just, you know, whatever, she's a junkie and you shouldn't, you know, just for, you know, forget about it. She doesn't care. You know, that's, we don't do that. And I think that that happens a lot. And I've seen that a lot in friends, you know, extended friends or acquaintances, families where like one person is just so angry at the person that's, and, and the other person, like maybe the, for example, the, the dad is really angry at the son because he became an addict and the mom's like, that's my son. I love him. I just want to help him. But the dad's like, you can't keep feeding. And they're just, they're just going like this, you know, the whole time. And, and I think that those two people need to realize and come together and just try to help and then figure it out on the back end. And I think we did a really good job of that because I definitely had some opinions at the time. Like I cut my mom off and Dominic was still seeing her a lot. And I, there was times I'm like, why are you doing that? You know, but I'm like, that's not my business. Cause it's his, how he wants to handle it with my mom is how he gets to handle it with my mom. So anyways. And that's why you guys are, have a podcast that's like doing a great job yeah. <laughs> is because you can see each other and respect each other and know that, the path that one of you walks is not the path that all of you walk. You all walk different paths. You all have your own view of the situation. You all got wounded in a different way. Mm-hmm. Some of the ways are similar, mm-hmm. but, the, but they're all different. You were all different ages. You were all at different stages in your lives. You all needed different things. So yeah. And that you could honor that in each other and, and for each other. That's huge. 
That's huge. It speaks very loudly for all three of you. I will pat you on the back. (laughs) (laughs) I am patting you on the back because I've seen enough families that are fucked up and never able to heal and never able to get a grip on their own feelings and manage their own feelings. And it's always just you, 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 somebody else's fault all the time. You can't, there's no healing in that. Mm -hmm. So this is great. This is like totally feeding uh, my like mom approval needs right now. Yes. (laughs) Good. Good. (laughs) That was used to be kind of a joke, like that. I would just collect moms. Like all my friends, moms would become my mom. Uh, I was doing a lot in a church and the pastor's wife was like, I'll just be your mom now. And like, so then I would just go to their house for family dinner and like, stuff. so thank you. Yeah. Malik, well, I can't... I... Go ahead, Malik. Do you have to say something? I saw your hand up. <laughs> I wanted to, uh, to ask, oh man, I don't know. We're kind of jumping away here, but I don't want to forget this. I wanted to ask, um, for each of you guys, like there's pretty, I don't know actually how old, all of you are but there's a pretty significant age difference right between like dom and the oldest yeah 12 12 years i'll be 32 this year and dom will be 21 so 11 and some change years difference and i just turned 28 so yeah oh okay okay so seeing that happen to your mom i guess you two alex and jordan were a little bit older but did it do anything for you dom when when we turn you know 14 15 and everybody's drinking and smoking and doing did it were you like i no, i want nothing to do with it i've seen what happens i don't want to do it or because i feel like a lot of the time when people have a have a parent like that or someone around them they they either do that or they go the other way and and they kind of end up in a similar situation yeah, uh, I haven't touched alcohol uh, my, like my whole life. Um, I didn't try anything until I was uh, 17. Like, so not that long ago. Um, and it, it came with it came a lot with healing because uh, I trusted myself and I I was scared. That, you know, if I tried something, I could, you know, end up hurting my family, end up hurting myself. And uh, and so when I was going through that healing process, I was finally let go of the stress and the anxiety of it. Um, and I finally tried it. <laughs> it's weed, by the way. It's nothing crazy. <laughs> I, I just I yeah. specify here. Yeah, I, 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 that's a good idea. Um, but yeah, no, alcohol, I've never tried, mostly because I don't have an interest uh, now, now, now that the anxiety is gone. But uh, I just don't really get the whole getting drunk and then getting punished afterwards. Like, what's the hangover? It makes no sense to me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I avoided it at all costs because of that reason. I was scared. I was the exact same way. Exactly the same. I mean, still to this day, I the farthest I've gone is I drank, uh, what, half a beer one time? Maybe a whole beer, actually, uh, combined in my life. But I don't think I'll ever ever be a, a drinker i don't it's not for me i've seen what it does to to people so i was scared but i just wasn't sure if you had the same yeah. same kind of deal what about uh, you guys i mean you were older so you probably were already i mean you were old enough to like drink and stuff yeah i was 17 when i think the act of addiction started but oh, I guess i've so. shared before like i think that there was um i think that there was some alcoholism there before that maybe just didn't talked about wasn't talked about or was just normal and uh i mean that was one of the bonding things was and alex didn't drink as much but like i would just get pretty drunk with a lot of people in our family (laughs) yeah for me it um drinking was never i was always like again i was 20 22 so i i legally could drink and so it wasn't even like an issue did i have my high school partying days yeah and i you know i've i drank you know in high school and i had had those experiences but i didn't during that time i you know we had the um stepford wise family if you will i mean like we had you know mom and stepdad and we had a nice house and you know we they were both parents you know worked and dinner was at six and there wasn't that wasn't around when i was growing up that didn't happen until i was an adult so i didn't really have those fears in high school and as I got older, I mean, I've never really been a big drinker. Um, I have, you know, indulged myself in a lot of weed. I smoked <laughs> a lot of weed in my life. But uh, 
I don't know if I shared before, but it, it's weird. And when you talked earlier about how fast things can happen, I vividly remember I would like smoke weed with my friends and then I'd come in and my mom would be like, you stink. Don't do that. That's she was so anti, like you need to not do this and you can't be doing that and X, Y, and Z. And to, to, to have grown up with that version of my mom. And then five years later, she's a full blown heroin addict. It just, it still blows my mind because I went from, you know, maybe a glass of wine a night to full blown heroin addict. And somewhere in the middle, I got yelled at for smoking weed. And I'm just like, wait, what? <laughs> no, it just, you know, it, it was all, all of us experienced it differently. So I did not even Jordan. think about that. Um, but damn, you're right. People, I mean, a glass of wine a night to a full blown heroin addict. That is, I mean, it really happens like that too. I just think, you can't can't stress enough that people need to know that it can happen to anybody and it and it yeah. happens real fast and sometimes it sneaks up on you don't even know that there's a problem until it's there's a real problem well like you well, said certainly. earlier my my boss always jokes and he says you know uh you know i work for a, a trucking company and he's like man we're we're uh, you know one accident away from bankruptcy and the same can be said you're one accident away from addiction like it's one in one day yeah. your whole life can change well and circling back to something that we talked about earlier like the stuff that happens to you so young impacts you forever and you may not even realize it until you're older especially like going through therapy i've shared like there was an experience where i was really struggling with something and i couldn't figure out why and it was something that dominic and i 10 years ago ha had happened and i like had to forgive myself for that and, like get talk to dominic and he's like Oh, no sweat like you're good but there's like i don't know much about it so i'm not going to get into it but like the epigenetics of like stuff that happens to you like the nat natural and in, um ingrained fear of like spiders and snakes and stuff that can kill you like there's something going on in your genes that is passed on so like you gotta wonder is there something else some trauma stuff that's like passed on and that you know, you never know what you're susceptible to, what can happen and like how it can trigger you. Or, I almost hate that word because <laughs> I think it's overused a little bit, but like you, you never know what's going to cause giant pain. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay. So to wrap it up a little bit, first I'll ask you, Sheree, um, what are some final statements, final words, words of encouragement, anything that you would like to tell uh, the listeners, anyone struggling with substance abuse, anything? Um, number one, for someone who is struggling with substance abuse, substance abuse, know that you're not alone. Like you're absolutely not alone. It feels lonely and there's lots of shame and it feels like you're never going to be okay. But there are lots of us, lots of us who are okay and lots of us who don't judge that kind of thing. It's just a matter of finding someone. Just don't give up. Just don't give up. Keep trying. Just keep trying. And then, and then for those who love somebody who's addicted, for God's sakes, take care of yourself and get out of their business and figure out how to be kind and show love and have boundaries and say no in a kind way, in a firm, kind way. It's the biggest boundaries are so important. And it's so important to send the message to somebody that I don't like what you're doing and you can't be here when you're doing that, but it doesn't mean that I don't love you. And, you know, when you see them next time, make sure that you meet at McDonald's or something and buy them something to eat. Like just be kind. It doesn't take much. And people feel that, you know, as somebody who's addicted and down and out and doesn't have a place to live and, and is doing everything against their own grain to get what they need to just survive through another day. I don't need a bunch of judgment from the rest of us who think, you know, well, if I could do it, you could do it. <laughs> Why do you got to do that? Um, the, the one other thing that I thought about earlier that I didn't mention was kids, people with kids who are, who are out there and don't see their kids. Um, lots of times people don't understand. I address this a lot still with people. They go, well, why don't they just call their kids? Like, why can't they just, they never make a visit. They never, well, it's because they don't number one, feel worthy. And number two, they don't want to put their kids through the pain of having them show up looking horrible, feeling horrible, and then go away and then not be able to make it to the next visit. So they just, some, I've heard it said so many times, it's just, it's easier if I just stay away 
the kid doesn't have to see me in this shape or the kid doesn't have to see me come and go or it's just easier to stay away. And then there's that whole shame factor where they just don't feel like they're worthy. Um, that kind of messed me up <laughs> because <laughs> in the perspective of the kid, you know, all you want to do is see that person. Uh, yes. <laughs> but Malik, same question. Uh, final statements, anything you want to say? I'd probably just say to reiterate that it's, it's a physical, literally a physical ailment just as much as people think it's someone with a weak mind or they don't have the willpower. It'll physically, I mean, alcohol, the, the withdrawals, you try to stop cold turkey, they'll kill you. It'll kill you. You'll literally die. If you stop doing this thing, your body changes. These people cannot help it. So when you see someone out there, whether you know them or not, like if they could stop, they would 10 out of 10 people. They don't want to do that. They, they have to, like, they can't, they cannot stop. It's, it's, a, I just think people need to remember that they're people and they can't help it. And they don't deserve being treated like shit. Yeah. Amen. Addiction, well addiction is not a choice. <laughs> addiction is not a choice. It's not a choice. Nobody grows up going, yeah, I'm going to be a junkie. and I'm going to fuck my family up. Nobody says that. Nobody wants that. It's not a choice. The first time that you pick it up, sometimes that's not a choice. Like, oh, okay, my friends are doing it or this or that, or maybe I'm already addicted because I had pills. But nobody chooses to go that far in their life. It, it, it grabs a hold of you and then you don't have, you lose the choice. You have a choice to use a clean needle or not. You have a choice to use an alcohol wipe or not. You have a choice to, you know, visit the needle exchange or not. Those are choices. You don't just drop something and go, oh, okay, I messed my life up. I guess I should do something different. It's not that easy. So, Well, I mean, I think I speak for all of us when I say we'll definitely have you guys back on again because this, <laughs> this has been awesome. And we greatly appreciate you being here and your experience and everything you have done and continue to do. I know just from some of the stuff you said has helped me uh, yeah. just in this okay. you know, yeah. hour we've been talking. So thank you. Yeah. Good. Well, it, it was an honor that you guys asked us to be on. So I'm, I'm honored that I got to be here. If you or anyone you know are struggling with addiction, please reach out to the National Substance Abuse Hotline at 1-800-662-4357 for additional help. And remember, you're not alone.